Hi, I'm Pete Scalia, and this is P.S. Never Give Up. In this episode of the P.S. Never Give Up podcast, I talk with actor, writer, producer, and performer John Lawson. I think everyone should have at least one person in their life who inspires them to never give up. And for me, that person is John. To say that John's lived an incredible life is really an understatement. A double amputee for more than half of his life now, John has metal hooks for hands. But there's so much more to his story. He's a true champion for all people living with disabilities and personifies fortitude and perseverance. Like any good story or classic comedy or tragedy, John's story has multiple acts. As a result, I've broken up our conversation into two parts. In this, part one, John shares how he went from a promising pianist to single dad, the tragic accident that claimed both of his hands, and the unbelievable things he's accomplished since then. John Lawson's been a huge inspiration for me personally, and I'm proud to call him my friend. We recently caught up like we have many times over the years, over a bottle of whiskey. According to this, I only have like 12 hours left on each card, so... I think that should cover us. We should be all right. Yeah. So, all right, well, one more. Sir, thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Welcome to the uh, the studio. I appreciate it. The inaugural uh, interview for PS Never Give Up in uh, the official Felito Media Studio uh, here at home. And, uh, you know, when I, when I first came up with this concept, I mean... You were the first person that came to mind. Um, I know you and I have, have shared war stories over the years. Yeah. Um, you and I go go way back. Yeah. Um, and it's surprising how quickly time goes. But I figured, you know, we would just treat this like a, a conversation. Yeah. And uh, just talk. And, um, you know, we'll put it together and, and have some fun with this. I, so. I, you know, and I love it. I, of course, follow you on social media. And stalk you on social media, more for the kids' pictures. But uh, uh, I get which, that a lot. Yeah, which yeah. you know, and and it's funny in our conversation, you've had two more kids since I last saw you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's kind of strange. It's been so many years that we haven't connected, but just with careers going different different ways, and me mm-hmm. in L.A. and you in Columbus. So it is really cool to be back. And when I saw this, P.S. Never Give Up. I go. Man, what a great concept. You know, I don't know what the PS stands for. Is that postscript? Yeah, right. But uh, but it, it's so wild how it's a play on words that it works both ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. And I thought, that's pretty smart. That, that's I awesome, dude. That's that. awesome. And for uh, for folks who don't know, I mean, obviously, you know, we, we've been friends for a number of years. Yeah. Um, and when you were talking about with kids, I know... Uh, you know, when yours were grown, you had the chance to move to L.A. to pursue your dream. Yeah. And, uh, you know, after going through what we did to start our family, and you were the first person yeah. outside of our family to hold Lola when yeah. she was born. Yeah. Um, which not a lot of people would know that. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so now that we're like the party of five and the whole thing, and I know a lot has happened. And, um, you know, when I when I think of people that have like never give up stories. Um, you know, everybody has at least one, right? Never give yeah. up moment. But you are somebody who keeps coming into my mind because you have many, many chapters. There are many different yeah. aspects. Uh, your story goes deeper than just one story. And I know that, you know, being an actor, you could probably appreciate that, you know, from a Shakespearean standpoint, uh, 
there are some comedic moments. Yeah. There are some tragic moments. Um, and I'm just really excited to have the opportunity uh, as, as a friend to, to share your story. And I know you've shared it many times. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. And, and I'm glad um, this is sort of uh, our, our first our first time. It's kind of cool. It's, I'm, I'm, yeah. I love being in the studio. This is what a great space. I mean, this is just Thanks. wonderful, man. I I love it, you know. And uh, of course, being a keyboard player, I'm just mm -hmm. totally geeking out on all the rack and stacks over here. It's just amazing, man. And uh, I, of course, you know, I followed you around when you played with Snidely and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and it's just cool. Just taking pictures. It was so cool just to be there and take still shots of you and Snidely. So, um, to be here and, and be in the studio now, uh, for this next chapter right. is, is really awesome. Well, let's start, uh, let's go back a little bit. Obviously, you know, as, as buddies, we got to know each other's stories personally and intimately. Yeah. And, um, you know, when it comes to being a musician, as you said, classically trained musician, you're you're not someone who obviously, you know, a, a, you're a double amputee, but but you weren't always. You weren't right. born that way. Um, take us back to you know. Obviously, we met each other in the Cincinnati area. Right. Where Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Eastern North Carolina, mm -hmm. and um, you know, it's uh, big time football. Mm -hmm. I used to play like little league football and the grade school levels. And I was a big boy. And, um, you know, I, I told you when, when I was came in, I, I had a, um, uh, a New Year's goal to lose 10 pounds and I've only got 20 to go. So I, uh, but, you know, I'm almost to my middle school weight now. Uh -huh. you know, uh -huh. I, I'm getting back to it. So I was always a lineman and my mother didn't mind me playing too much, but she was afraid my hands would get hurt. Because I started playing piano when I was three years old. Mm -hmm. And I started taking piano lessons when I was four. And, you know, I mean, I gave my first piano concert when I was like four and a half, four or five years old. Mm -hmm. And I studied piano continuously for 17 years all the way through college as a classical pianist. Mm -hmm. But flashback to when I'm in middle school, having to play middle school football, I had to be late for practice because I had a piano recital. And I'm late after everybody else has done laps and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And somehow I got to find out by the other players that, oh, the Liberace had to go to his <laughs> piano lesson, which made me a much better lineman when I hit the guy across from me. So it kind of worked both ways for me. But it was so ironic that you flash forward to, you know, when I started at four, 26 years later, mm -hmm. I was 30 years old and I was in... I'd played classical concerts on stages all over you were with playing symphonies. In bands too, right? Well, I like, played in bands. Yeah, I did the whole like band, surf thing. band thing. Yeah, I did yeah. a band called I—I uh, I can't even remember the name of it. We played like beach music, you know, yeah. or East yeah. Coast beach beach music. Right. I can't remember the name of. It. But yeah, I did that. You know, I, I used to have a Hammond B three, mm -hmm. the big one. Oh yeah. With the Leslie. And we playing that around. I had one of the first Moog mini synthesizers, little bitty, you know, mm -hmm. and um, with the bender. I mean, that was like the cool thing. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, but yeah, I did that for a while, but, you know, all still studying classical. I'd be playing Bach, Beethoven, Chopin, whatever. And um, in college, the same thing. So my mom never wanted me to play high school football 
because she's afraid I'd hurt my hands. You know, bigger, harder hitting guys and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But my dad was, no, he's got to play high school football. It's North Carolina. you got to play high school football, boy. Right. So uh, I did. And it wasn't my hands, but my knees. I got taken out in a game late in the season and got kind of clipped from the side because I was sacking the quarterback, and you know this one guy came across, and they double-teamed me. One guy hit me high, one hit me low, Ooh. and it just tore out both cartilage on the knees, and I was out for the rest of the season. Yeah, And that was North Carolina football. Hey, Serge, you're right. Boys shouldn't have been tackling our quarterback. Right, right. But, uh, yeah, so um, I had to have knee surgery, and I couldn't play football anymore. Well, I had scholarships or tentative letters of intent. I think that's what it was called at the time to play for some pretty big schools. And of course I lost all that. My mm-hmm. knees were gone in high school. So then I had to fall back and I'd always sang and been a singer and piano. So then I go, okay, well, uh, my buddy from one year ahead of me is going to this college for music. He goes, yeah, we need tenors, man. We're really low on tenors. And I didn't realize tenors were such a big deal in choirs. And I was a high singing first tenor and I auditioned and got in. And so I didn't, I had a couple of scholarships, but not like football, full Mm -hmm. boat rides. Mm -hmm. So I went to a little um, Christian liberal arts college in Tennessee and studied music and piano and started singing opera. And that was my life, yeah. yeah. And then I was 30 years old working with a company that painted above ground water tanks, like your. City water tanks. Mm-hmm. And we were working in a cotton mill in North Carolina. And just so happens, uh, geographically, it's where the actual Norma Ray stood up with the sign that was portrayed in the movie by Sally Field mm-hmm. to unionize. They couldn't talk about it, but she held up this sign, and that's where the union started in the cotton mills. Mm-hmm. But it was on that location, and there was an old water tank built in the 30s that was used for fire suppression now. It wasn't like, you know, used for drinking water, Mm -hmm. but for fire suppression in the cotton mills. Mm -hmm. And there was an electric line that was brought in the 70s, not to the National Electric Safety Code. It was brought in too close to an existing metal structure. Mm -hmm. So we're on a scaffold on the side of this water tank, and I have this aluminum extension pole about extended 17 feet or so with a little roller on the end. Mm -hmm. And I turned to paint, I had it under my arm, under my left arm, my right hand holding a couple of you know inches or foot in front of it mm-hmm. to balance it because with it extended 17 feet out in front of me, it was heavy, mm-hmm. even though it was a little three-inch roller. Sure. And I was just doing some touch-up on spots that were missed. This was the top coat. For some reason, they called them holidays. If it was like when you were spray painting, if it was a spot that was missed, it was called a ho- I guess they call it a holiday because it's a spot that's missed uh-huh. when you're on holiday. But So I was just doing this touch-up, and the electric line that was coming in, it was actually one phase of a three-phase 21,000-volt line, 7,000 volts arced over to the back of the aluminum pole that was under my arm, and uh, electricity went across the front of my chest, and where I was leaning up against the scaffold, because I was bending down to set the pole down, um, the electricity exited out my left cheek, because the the scaffold was touching the water tank, which was a ground, mm-hmm. and the electricity f- goes to ground. So it luckily stayed on the outside of my body, but exited out my left cheek, and it blew a hole in me from the bottom of my cheek to about above my kidney. Wow. So if somebody calls me a half-ass, they don't know how true it is. 
But I mean, it's amazing that like you you remember this. Oh yeah, yeah. I never lost consciousness, which is really? another weird thing. Yeah, it was seven thousand volts, and it's it, when I was in shop class as a teenager, I learned that volts is how many times the mule kicks, and amps is how hard he kicks. Okay. And it's the amps that kill you. And uh, I don't know what the amperage was, but it was high. So it sort of just burned everything instantly. Wow. And the aluminum pole acted sort of like a welding rod. Mm -hmm. And they surmised what happened, the investigators, was that it burned the aluminum and melted the aluminum that the space between the wire and the end of the pole got too wide, just like when you had an old carbon arc spotlight. They had mm -hmm. to constantly feed each other like you do a welding rod. And, but then also, if you've ever been in a lightning storm in your house, your lights blink mm -hmm. and they might blink and then the third time they go out. It's because most of these substations have an automatic reset trip. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, this one, instead of re-tripping, it tripped out completely instead of refiring. So that's sort of what saved my life. Yeah. And, um, but I never lost consciousness. I had a safety belt on. We were about 30 feet in the air, tied off onto the safety cable. And um, I remember, um, maybe I blacked out for a second, mm -hmm. but I was like leaning forward. On the scaffolding. On the still, scaffolding, like... off, you know, looking over the edge 30 feet down because my safety belt was holding me. Yeah. And to me, it felt like in my mind, my memory is that I had on one of those big navy peacoats. Mm -hmm. And it was like the peacoat arms were hitting me in the face. But it, were my, it, but it was my arms that were gray and ashen from the electrical burn. No kidding. They were gray already, yeah. And uh, so the other the foreman that was on the scaffold with me came over and you know, pulled me up, got my safety line, laid me down. And we had these... Um, air motors that were operated because we usually air sprayed it with mm -hmm. a with an air, airless sprayer but the, the cable climbers were air operated motors and so he would go let this side down and then go let this side down like a window washer but he had to do it by himself so another guy that was on the ground figured out what was going on because it sounded like a boom explosion they didn't know what had happened when it hit me mm -hmm. and he hollered down the guy climbed up the leg of the water tower came over onto the scaffold and then they could let the motor down. Someone else had called 911 and the local emergency squad came up mm -hmm. and uh, they hauled me off. And uh, in North Carolina, there's the North Carolina J.C. Burn Center. Mm -hmm. So I was taken to the local hospital there in Roanoke Rapids where I was working. And um, they um, said, we got to take him to the burn center. And, uh, well, they have a helicopter, not at the local hospital, but at the burn center. But it, was, it would take 45 minutes and then 45 minutes back. And the ambulance driver was there. And I'm in laying on a gurney with, you know, with one of those little curtains around you. Yeah. And there's two doctors sort of at the side of my bed mm -hmm. and the ambulance driver that had just brought me in. And I didn't realize it till later, but this ambulance driver, there's a local dinner theater there. And I had done some dinner theater and he was one of the, he had been in one of the shows with me, so he knew me. Yeah. And the doctor says, well, it's 45 minutes for the helicopter to get here, 45 minutes back. And the guy goes, it's an hour and a half. And the ambulance driver says, I can have him in Chapel Hill in an hour and a half at the burn center. And the other doctor says, well, you might as well take him in an ambulance so you have a way to bring the body back. Wow. And <laughs> I'm conscious. You heard him say this. Yes, like, and I, I sit up on the bed. Are you guys talking about me? 
look, I, I can just go on home. I, I don't think I really need to be here because I was, they, the nurse told me. I mean, you me, had to, like, did you realize that it was that severe? I don't think I did, no. I, mean, I think the adrenaline or? was shock and adrenaline yeah. and everything else. And plus later the nurse told me, one of the local, my mother was a nurse that worked there. And mm-hmm. one of the nurses told her they'd given me enough morphine to stop a bull moose at mating time. And I was sitting up on the table wanting to go home. Wow. <laughs> So, but the doctor goes, hey, nurse, nurse, get over here. Get this guy. <laughs> Give him another shot. Yeah. So uh, I remember them um, pushing me. I stayed conscious. I didn't want to lose consciousness because mm-hmm. I figured that would be it. And uh, I, I knew because I couldn't move my arms, you know, but the only pain was in the bottom of my foot. And in my work boots, there was a nail that had sort of worn through the heel but it also, it was smooth on the inside, but had worn through the, you know, the little thing on the inside. And that acted as a ground. So I had an exit wound out the bottom of my foot. Wow. And it, once they debrided it and everything, but it looked like a funnel. It started mm-hmm. like at a point and came out like this. And it all started from this the little bitty shiny head of a nail that was through my sock, you know, and everything. Mm-hmm. So that's what hurt. Everything else, I think, was just... I mean, all of my muscles went tense, and then when it quit, everything was limp, and I couldn't move, like but being I mean, hit with a taser. In- incredible at this point that you were alive. Well, yeah, I mean, it, I guess it was, but <laughs> people that know me when I was a kid and a teenager, they go, "He's so damn hard-headed. It's not a problem. No, it's not. We mm-hmm. know that kid. He could he could bang his head. He would get up. But yeah, seven thousand volts. You know, that's two and a half times what they use in the electric chair. Wow. Of course, it wasn't, it was just under the arm, but it stayed on the outside of my chest and didn't go through the lungs and the heart. So, so this ambulance driver then, so he... He drove he me to Chapel Hill in Get you minutes. to Chapel Hill, get you there to the burn center. Yeah. And I wake up, on, I, I, when they, when they uh, pushed me in the ambulance, I was conscious, you know, mm-hmm. I remember the, you know, click, click, and the ambulance had a door, you know, on the side with a little side window. And I remember looking at, it was in North Carolina. I could see the Loblolly Carolina pines, the pine trees. Mm-hmm. And I figured that'd be the last thing I saw. It was kind of a blue sky, you know, Carolina blue sky with the green trees, the Loblollies, the pine needles. And I looked up at it and I thought that'd be the last thing. And then I just said, okay. And I gave in to the drugs and the right, morphine right. and all that stuff. And I woke up in Chapel Hill on a debridement table. And in the burn center, Everybody comes in for a new arrival, all the doctors, all the residents, mm. all the nurses that can leave patients. It's a critical care facility. So you're on this metal table with this agricultural type spray arm spraying water on your body. And they're cutting, I think they'd already cut my clothes off, but I'm stark naked, mm-hmm. completely naked. I do not remember, but my doctor who took my case, Dr. Peterson, who was the head of the burn center, came in later and told me, he goes, well, Lawson, I knew you were going to be okay. And I go, how's that? He goes, well, when they brought you in, they sat you on the table. He said, you opened your eyes. You looked around at the room full of people. There were 25, 30 people in this room. Yeah. And he goes, you said, God damn, I hope somebody charged admission to see, my, see me naked. <laughs> and he goes, you know what? I figured your wang still works. You were going to be okay. <laughs> That's what my doctor told me. <laughs> And I guess I did, because other nurses, I go, did I really say that? go, yeah, you did. We all laughed our ass off. And so that was the, I stayed in the hospital three and a half, four months in the burn center in Chapel Hill. I'm a, like a 20, over 22, 23% burn Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Electrical burn over my body. Yeah. The amputations plus what was burned in my chest and hip and side. So I... Uh, I mean, I was, did the amputations like happen right away? Was yes. that something that you knew was going to happen? or I was pretty drugged, but the left one, they amputated right away. Yeah. And uh, my wife at the time knew that I played piano and she wasn't signed from, to amputate. So they kind of woke me up enough to say, sir, we're going to have to amputate your left hand. You need to sign here. I went, okay. I, wow. you know, I, I guess it's legal, but I mean, there was nothing they could do. It was yeah. either that or die. Right. So they amputated and they try to save as much as they can. Mm -hmm. But this arm was wrapped around the pole as a fulcrum. Mm -hmm. So it was damaged more. Mm -hmm. So they ended up, this arm is amputated about three inches below the elbow. Mm -hmm. That's where they ended up having to cut. Mm -hmm. But this one was right away. And I literally stayed under anesthesia for like two weeks, three weeks, 10 days. Mm -hmm. Because I, would, I got hurt on a Wednesday, I think it was. So that was a surgery day. So they took me right to surgery. I had Wednesday, Friday, um, then an, another Monday and Wednesday. And Friday was my last surgery. So they woke me up on Saturday. Wow. But I was in sort of like a coma uh, because my kidneys were shutting down because of the electricity and electrical shock. So my brother and family came to see me. They had like four mainline IVs going with blood pressure cuffs. I do remember waking up in a hallway and seeing the bag hanging on a pole with a blood pressure cuff on it. I thought, that's strange. What, why, did they, why did they need to take the blood pressure of the bag? Of course, I'm yeah. out of it. But it's forcing the fluid into the body to flush mm. out the kidneys, and that's what saved my life. Wow. So... I reward my kidneys with lots of good old scotch. <laughs> Thanks for the hard work. Yeah, Here's guys. Your reward. Well, they, they work fine. They still work fine. So, so all right. So you're 30 years old. Yeah. This happens. Now, at that point, you mentioned you were married. Yeah. Um, was your son born at this point? Yeah, he was six years old. Okay. And uh, at the time I was 30, I'd studied piano for 17 years. So that's mm -hmm. over half of my life had been spent... And about one month later, they amputated my right hand. They, they took the thumb on one of those of the right hand at one point in time. And then the hand died. They sewed it into my stomach to do a tram flap mm -hmm. to cover where they had to cut the damaged thumb off. Mm -hmm. And um, eventually the hand just died, like while it was sewn into my stomach. I had to, you know, to try to get a piece of skin across. And the doctor came in and he said, you know, we're not, we can't save the hand. You can't move the fingers, the tendons. There's five things, bone, tendon, muscle, vascular, skin. Mm -hmm. And I lost them all. So, um, so the hand had died. He says, you know, you're, you, I can, the, the, the vascular maybe was still there. He said, but you're not going to have any feeling. You're going to have this dead piece of meat swinging. I can live, leave that, but you'll never be able to do anything with it. He says, if you, if you replace it with a prosthetic, you'll be able to live a normal life. I went, okay. So I, that was the first time I really made a conscious decision to amputate my right hand. Mm -hmm. And that was on March the 11th, uh, 1987. Wow. And uh, I remember, you know, because I made the decision and that was the only night I cried. Yeah. Because I knew I'd never play again. You know, I would never, <laughs> damn you, Pete, I would never play piano again. Because mm -hmm. I thought, well, maybe they could uh, take a toe. I read about something where they could take a toe and sew it on for a thumb. 
you know, and I could bass with the hook on this side, but still be able to chord and do fingerings with the right hand. Yeah. But uh, that's when I cried. That was uh, 34 years ago. Yeah. So now I've got a seven and a half foot concert grand piano sitting in my living room. <laughs> but I have friends that come over and play. One of my best buddies is a musician at Disney and he uh, he's written hundreds of songs for Disney. Mm -hmm. And Phineas and Ferb. If you've ever watched Phineas and Ferb. Oh yeah. All the songs that they do on Phoenix and Ferb are my buddy Martin and other people, but mm -hmm. Martin does most of it. He lives about a mile from me. He comes over, and uh, before COVID, you know, we would do old farts, drinking old scotch, singing old standards. I've seen the videos. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but he's a hoot. So, but yeah, so he comes over and plays the piano, or other people play the piano, and uh, so I live vicariously through that, and then my daughter plays piano, so. Now, uh, see, this, I mean, Excuse now, me, you're, you're supposed to have like tissues <laughs> here, I guess. I mean, obviously that, that accident, um, everything you went through with that, I mean, would be unbearable really for, for, for just about anyone. Um, I think what is incredible to me is that, um, but between when the accident happened and, and you made that decision and you lost your, your hands and your arms to now, I mean, what's incredible to me is that a lot more <laughs> happened between then and now. But what's, yeah. I think, incredible to me, I mean, when it comes to people who just have that attitude that they're not going to give up, yeah. um, I mean, to me, you personify that. And, and, and this incident alone would, would have been enough for that. What, what happened next? Something that, that, that made you say, you know, I, you gotta, how, how did you, how did you process all of that? I, I don't know. You know, my mother grew up in the first depression in the thirties. Mm -hmm. And she raised me that, you know, you live in the moment. Obviously, she wasn't a Buddhist or anything. But, you know, she goes, don't worry about what happened yesterday or what you're going to do tomorrow. Enjoy where you are right now. Mm -hmm. And one of the books that she read to me was The Little Blue Train That Could. Mm -hmm. I think I can. I think I can. Over and over. I guess we only had one book. Every time I had to take a nap, it seemed like that's the book I wanted my mom to read, The Little Train That Could. Yeah. And I guess that stuck with me. Little did she know that so many years later in my life, it would become my mantra. The Greek chorus that, you know, going back to Shakespearean, mm -hmm. that's in the corner going, I think I can, I think I can. Right. And I, 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 that's what I attribute it to. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, when I was in the hospital, uh, my wife of 11 years... Uh, decided to leave and get a new person in her life. Well, she couldn't couldn't handle it. I couldn't... guess that's what it was. I don't blame her because I guess she wanted a man with a slow hand, not a lover with a stainless steel touch. So you know, and and it was another blow. It's like, oh, what the hell do I do now? Here I am with no hands, no wife, no life. 
and no house. Because mm -hmm. when I got hurt, they thought I was going to die. Right. And so we put everything in her name because it would be easier than, because I didn't have a will. I was young. Who needs a will at 30? You know, I didn't have anything really mm -hmm. <laughs> to will. Right. But I'd never thought about it. Yeah. So we just, you know, put the house in her name and, you know, because they thought I'd end up dying. So when she left, she got everything. She took everything. It wasn't 50-50. So I was starting all over again. And, and you, I, did you have the prosthetics at this point? Did you? Well, I, yeah. I mean, I had some temporary things and yeah. I went home with a set of temporary prosthetics, which are yeah. hooks just like I have now, yeah. except they had like little belt buckle type things to adjust the lengths and the straps to get them to where they would fit. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't know. They, I mean, they told me they were temporary, but I didn't know they weren't strong. And it's like, so I get home, I get out of the hospital. And I lived on a lake and grew up water skiing my whole life. Mm -hmm. And one of my buddies saw me and goes, hey, I'm going to be at Lake Water Skiing. You want to water ski? I go, heck yeah, I want to water ski. So I put on a ski vest. Put on, I used to slalom, but I put on two skis. I go, you know, hey, it's been a while since I slalom. And there's a lot more pressure to slalom, you know, yeah. pulling up. Yeah. So I put on two skis, actually wide jump skis. Mm -hmm. So I figured I need to plane real fast. And even though I only had half a has ass left, it still takes a lot of boat to get me out of the water. But, and we get up and I ski all over and I'm going, man, there's nothing to this. I'm holding. And I was worried about holding onto the rope. So I grabbed it with an open hook and this open hook and was yeah. holding onto a single handle yeah. rope. Never thought about how to let go. So we get and... We're coming back around by the pier and everybody's yelling and screaming, yeah, John, is so cool, you know. There's a bunch of people there having a pig picking or whatever. And uh, here's this guy with no hands, literally the second or third day out of the hospital after spending four months in the hospital. And I'm on water skis. So, you know, be it in my nature to show off, I peel way out to the side of the boat, cut back hard, hit the wake, grab air like crazy because these are jump skis to begin mm -hmm. with and come back and hit the water and dip a tip of the ski and boom. Ugh. Well, the force of the boat kept the the boat handle, the ski handle in my hook. I couldn't let go. Oh, jeez. And so there I am. And finally, all of a sudden, it went and I was, you know, I floated to the top. And he was killing the boat at the same time. But what we didn't realize was it had pulled one of my prosthetics off. I lost my right prosthetic. Sunday afternoon, the th second day after I got out of the hospital right. on Friday. Yeah. No, it was Saturday. I take it back. So Sunday they call in this dive team from a local dive. And, of course, it's a muddy lake and it's three feet of silt in the bottom. And they do a grid search. They can't find my arm. So I kind of tied a knot in the straps and made it so I only had one left. I didn't have anything on the left-hand side. I only had my right, but that was, as long as I could eat and wipe my butt, I was happy. So Monday morning, I drive back to the burn center in Chapel Hill, go into the prosthetic shop, you know, like this. Yeah. I'm going, uh, guys, I need another arm. I lost it. The guy goes, how the hell did you lose an arm? I go, I was water skiing. 
what the hell were you doing water skiing? I'm going, I used to water ski. I should be able to water ski now. Yeah. And so they go, okay, we need to make you a heavy duty permanent set of arms. Wow. And that is more or less, less a metaphor of how I've faced everything since then. I yeah. used to do it before. Yeah. I'm going to do it now. And wow. I learned very quickly that as a double amputee, in a world that's designed for agrammatically designed things that fit your hands or mm -hmm. a pistol grip or whatever it is, it's made to fit a hand and four fingers and a thumb. Mm -hmm. I knew that I had to learn to adapt myself to the world rather than expect the world to adapt to me. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I faced it all. Whether it's scuba diving, I don't use any special equipment. I use whatever's off the shelf and learned how to use it with hooks rather than make something special that would work with hooks. Now, see, this is so the truly incredible part. I mean, water skiing alone, <laughs> and, you're, and you're taking that on just a few days out of the hospital. Yeah. But I mean, since then, you mentioned scuba diving. Yeah. Right? You've you become a master I'm an instructor. dive instructor. I'm an instructor, yes. Um, the first one in the world with no hands, as far as they know. That's just incredible. And then... It didn't stop there also. So from the water to the skies, you're, yeah. you're a pilot? Yeah, I always wanted to be a pilot. I was in a Air Explorer post when I was 14, 15 years old mm -hmm. in Boy Scouts mm -hmm. and Explorers. And I could take all the ground school and do all that, but my parents really didn't have the dollars. And all we had to do was just fill the plane back up with gas. But, you know, back then, aviation gas was probably a dollar ninety nine a gallon, you know, when gas was 30 cents. And it was just more expense that my parents didn't have. So I never got in enough flying time to get my license. Mm -hmm. So you flash forward many years when I met my second wife and she got uh, breast cancer. And so she got into this vaccination program or was going to be in this cancer vaccine program that was taking place at Duke University. Mm -hmm. which was a short flight from where we lived. So I went back and got all my ground school, did all my flight training to become a pilot so I could fly her there. She could be in this vaccination program for this experimental thing for breast cancer mm -hmm. and then be back home by the time kids got out of school. Yeah. Wow. And so I go into the local FBO, the flight-based operation, and go, I want to learn to fly. And they kind of look at each other and they look at me and I'm going, it's no big deal. I, mm -hmm. I used to fly when I was in Boy Scouts at 16, but I never got my license. You take him. No, you take him. Let's give him to the new guy. So they did. And uh, believe it or not, and I'm not making this up, you can go to Middletown, Ohio. Mm -hmm. The name of the little airfield in Middletown, Ohio is Hook Field. Yeah. And that's where I finished up my... I started in Fairfield. No kidding. At Hamilton Fair, Butler County Regional Airport. Yeah. But my instructor worked, started working at Middletown. Yeah. So I finished up and did my the rest of my work at Hook Field in Middletown, Ohio. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, you talk about all right. But as far as the FAA knew, yeah. I was the first private pilot to ever be trained and certified from day one, mm -hmm. as a double amputee with hooks. Wow. And I had to do an FAA check ride. Yeah. So I flew over to Lunkin Airport, mm -hmm. picked up an FAA instructor, flew him around Cincinnati. Now we got to ask, so, all right, so we got to rewind a little bit here. Yeah. Because you go from North Carolina and you end up 
in, in Middletown in Cincinnati. Yeah. Now is that because of when you met my second your wife. wife? Yeah, my second wife. Yeah. I uh, well, we have to back up. You're right. Uh, my first wife left, and yeah. I a friend of mine called from a local dinner theater where I used to work. Mm-hmm. Said they amputated your hands, not your voice. We're doing this musical. It, they didn't have to pay royalties. We're just singing songs from things. And it was a way yeah. they kind of made money to bolster the budget. Yeah. Come sing for us. I went, okay. So they had a little pit orchestra. Mm-hmm. And there was this, I, of course, did a bunch of solos. I did one of my most favorites was uh, You Are My Special Angel. Mm-hmm. And so I had to work with the orchestra and the pianist and all that stuff. And the lady playing the piano, it was sort of her getaway. She was an MBA Worked at the local paper mill, you know, big and very smart lady. But this was sort of her getaway. She could play pit orchestra, volunteered, and at the local dinner theater. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had been recently divorced. And I never thought that I would ever date anybody again. I didn't mm-hmm. think any woman, my first wife left because I had hooks. That's what I felt like. Mm-hmm. Or didn't want to be around me, whatever. So... I don't know. It just seemed like second nature when I started. I met this single lady that could play the piano. Believe it or not, I started flirting. Yeah. I don't know how it came about, but I just started flirting. And we ended up dating. We dated for two years. Two Mm -hmm. years later, we got married. And after being married two years, we go, you know, she had a child from a previous. I had my son from the previous. Mm -hmm. And we go... They were on the same week, you know, had visitation or whatever. We had custody on the same weekends. But every other weekend we had off. Mm -hmm. We could travel. We could do whatever we want. We go, well, let's really screw this up and have one of our own. So then we had Whitney and now we have, you know, we have one around all the time. So when Whitney was two years old, Mm -hmm. well, prior to that, my wife got transferred to Cincinnati with her job. Okay. And a big promotion for her. And, um... So I became a full-time house spouse. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, my wife brought home the bacon and I fried it up in the pan. And, um, and so that's what the kids knew. Right. So, uh, and in, I mean, in the meantime, I got custody of Jason when he was 11. Okay. So he moved to Ohio with us. So I had my son Jason at 11. Kristen was, her daughter from a previous was like eight. Yeah. Eight or nine. And Whitney was like two. Wow. And uh, so, but I mean, I've seen like the pictures of you, like you know, holding the bottles. Oh yeah, I fed the baby, all, I right? changed the diapers, and I remember, and I've probably told you the story, but Debbie had gone back to work. You know, she was home six or whatever weeks, mm-hmm. and um, I'm changing the baby's diaper, and of course, it's little, you know, tabs, pampers, whatever. And I was always real careful, and of course, she was wiggly. She's mm-hmm. you know a month, six weeks, eight weeks old. And I'm trying to get the little, you know, adhesive tab to come over. And I get one done. So I'm trying to get the other one. And I'm trying to grab the diaper that you hook it to. And when I did, I went and I pinched her belly, her little fat belly. Oh, yeah. And there's like this, she looks at me with these big wide eyes. And then she starts screaming. I went, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I pinched the baby. So I put the diaper on. I get her calmed down. And I start crying my eyeballs out. And I called my wife, I punched the baby, I pinched the baby, I was changing her diaper and I pinched the baby. She goes, is she crying? I go, no. She says, why are you? <laughs> so, I mean, it was just like a little, you know, pinch on the skin. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was changing diapers. I changed diapers and 
you know, I made bottles. Yeah. I did it all from baby on. And then when Whitney was getting ready to turn two, right before she turned two years old, we moved there in June mm-hmm. of 91, I think it was. I can't remember the dates now. Yeah. But uh, in November of that year, we had lived there three or four months. She, We went on a European vacation, and when we got off in England, she had like this big bruise on her breast. And we were mm-hmm. in an airplane, and I figured my arms bumped her. But she felt like a little lump. So when we got back from our vacation... She went and had a biopsy, and it was inflammatory breast cancer, which is the worst wow. you can get. It, just by the name, it's stage four, and you know life expectancy is sometimes ninety to, you know, eighteen months, mm-hmm. ninety days to eighteen months. And so she fought it. You know, the baby was two years old. So now I had a wife with terminal cancer. Uh, you know, three kids under the age of eleven or twelve, and you know, cooking, cleaning, cutting grass going to doctor's appointments, going for chemos, getting kids to school, piano lessons, scouts, PTAs, and it was a one-man show. All of it. Yeah, and so my wife uh, survived for seven years, and then uh, the cancer was bloodborne. It's uh, uh, It was in the lymph nodes and all that kind of stuff. But it ended up going to the bones, and it eventually metastasized in the skull and then went across to the brain. And then she passed away in 2001. And uh, so, you know, now I'm a single dad of a motherless daughter, you know, with a son in college and a, uh, a, a stepdaughter and high senior in high school. And uh, so I stayed in Cincinnati and, uh, you know, still tried to do acting. When Whitney was in high school, my manager was still submitting me for stuff. And I did lots of television mm-hmm. and film work. Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> She would stay with a friend, and I'd fly out for a day or two, shoot my scene, and come back home. Yeah. You know. And then when Whitney went to college, I went to L.A., and I'd stay the winters. You know, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd, I'd winter in L.A., and summer <laughs> in my Ohio home, you know. And uh, so... Because, uh, I mean, you had always been an artist, right? Like, yeah, That's yeah. always, like, you're... That's my whole life. It's the only thing I've ever done. I've right. never done anything else. Now, we got to throw another aspect in here, though. Okay. Because, obviously... I mean, you had gone through all that. This was your transformation. This was your, you you had told me before, right? Your true love. You're, you're starting yeah. this next chapter. Oh, yeah. Um, but then in the midst of all this, there was a fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. I can't believe I forgot about that. <laughs> I yeah. mean, so you're... So yeah. In, in the middle of all that... While after, Debbie was sick. While Debbie was sick, about two years, she would have chemo and it would sort of knock out the cancer. Right. And they would do a PET scan or whatever their latest technology was, and nothing would show up. Mm-hmm. We didn't call it remission. We learned early on, but it was undetectable. Mm-hmm. So she would go through six, eight, ten weeks of not having to have chemo. Mm-hmm. So Whitney was young, and her parents were, you know, back in Missouri. So we had planned a trip. The middle daughter was going to Girl Scout camp. My son was at IU at Indiana University at band camp. And uh, she was going to take the baby, go back to her mom's. And I was doing some remodeling on the house. Mm-hmm. So it just worked out perfect. I'd have a week to, uh, to work on the house that I had to tear out some stuff and nobody would be home. And she could visit with her mom and take the baby and this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And she was felt good. She was like back to normal. It was like fun having a wife again and not a patient. Yeah. And um, 
So in the midst of all that, I come home from dropping my son at IU and I was replacing the floor in the master bathroom or whatever. And um, it, um, I woke up in the middle of the night to like beep, 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 beep. Back then, this would have been uh, 91, maybe 92, something like that. I forgot mm -hmm. when the house burned, but mm -hmm. back then you had a modem. You know, right, right, right. Well, if you stayed online too long, it would start beeping and automatically log you off. Yeah. And I thought, oh, it's just the modem. So you're thinking this was AOL or whatever. Yeah, it's like, like the it modem kinda... just knocking me off, you yeah. know. Okay, I'll run over and go back to sleep. And I go, wait a minute. I went online tonight. I was working. I was putting tile floor in the bathroom. You know, I was putting down ceramic tile. Yeah. Holy shit, that's a smoke detector. So I sit up in bed and the bedroom door, it started at the base of the steps to come upstairs. There was a little like closet there. And on mm -hmm. the back side of that was my saltwater aquarium. So the steps were on fire. I had just refinished them, put on three or four coats of polyurethane, which is a wonderful accelerant. Oh, wow. But it was just polyurethane on the steps. Yeah. They were wooden steps. Mm -hmm. you know? And um, so I, I, my first thing I thought was my kids. Oh, my God. So I run out, run down the hallway, and it's just like, it was like if someone was holding a gray blanket you know, just about waist level. Mm -hmm. And it was the smoke that, you know, with all the carpet burning and all the stuff burning. And I couldn't breathe and I was choking. It would burn your throat. So I got on my hands and knees and crawled. And I crawled about halfway out in the hallway and the, the steps were just blazing. It was bright, like a, like a sun going off. And then I remember, wait a minute, the kids aren't here. So I go back in my bedroom, shut the door, and the, the master bath was right there to the side. And I grabbed a towel, shoved it under the edge of the door. But my room was still full of smoke. Because you couldn't get out. I couldn't the, get out. I couldn't go down the, the stairs. stairs. Yeah. Right. So the bedroom, you know, had windows. Mm -hmm. So I could open up the wooden window, and it was built in the 70s or whatever. So it had mm -hmm. these old aluminum storm windows mm -hmm. where you had to slide this little latch and then slide this little latch. Wow. And I could get it with my hooks, but as I would start to lift it up, you know how kind of cast aluminum will catch. Mm -hmm. And my hooks would slip off and it, it would fall back down. And the only clean air I could get was there was like a, uh, um, what do you call it? A, 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 bed, a bed skirt, you know, yeah. covered up. So I could stick my head under the bed, take a big breath of fresh air, try to get the, the storm window up. Okay, now let's put this in perspective. My house is burning down behind me with mm. nothing but the bedroom door. And here's, I've got the wooden window open, but there's this old 1970s three-track storm window yeah. that I can't get up. I've got metal hooks that break glass all the time. But I was afraid that I would bend the frame and I'd never be able to find one to replace it. Not thinking that the house is a freaking total on loss fire. behind me. Right. Yes, it's on fire. I'm more worried about... So finally, I get it up to this kind of middle position. Not middle, but where you could open it up about that much. Yeah. Just big enough for my big half-ass, fat half-ass to get through it. Since I'd blown half of it off, I could get through the window. And I dropped down from the second story. Wow. So I... Uh, I mean, at this point, I mean, neighbors around? Like, was this... No, it's like 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. Wow. And so I... Go downstairs. I had a woodworking shop, kind of a split level, a lot like your house. 
So, and I mean, you're like, were you, you I, I landed dropped, okay? Like landed you, okay. I mean, I mean, I scratched my legs a little bit, but I, I landed okay, kind of d- tucked and like rolled. rolled. Wow. Yeah. And uh, go downstairs because I had a telephone in, the, in, in like coming into the, the main part of the house, the main floor of the house. Yeah. And I opened up the back door because we didn't lock the door. Yeah. And because we had a fenced in backyard and a big German Shepherd. And I opened up the back door and I learned what the meaning of backdraft means. Woof. That's no, when I lost okay. both eyebrows and eyelashes. So I ran down off the back porch. I closed the door back. Or it actually kind of blew shut on me. But I ran back down to the basement level where we had another, you know, walkout basement because I had a phone in my woodworking shop down there. Yeah. So I was going to call 911 and the phone's dead. It already burned through the telephone wires or whatever. So there was no dial tone. So then I decided to run out around my driveway to go to my neighbor's house across the street yeah. to bang on their door. And there's this car, like, parked, catty-cornered sort of up. I lived in a curve on my drive, on my sidewalk, you know, with lights facing at my driveway. Mm-hmm. And I look back, and my house is just, it's already through the roof. You know, it's already gone through the, the roof, and the house is just full of blades. I mean, you yeah. see all the windows lit up, and everything's going. And I'm going... Somebody set my house on fire. Why would they do that? Should I go whoop his ass or call the fire department? So I'm standing there in my driveway with these headlights, like deer in headlights, staring at this guy, adrenaline flowing, trying to figure out what the hell do I do? Right. You know, do I go call 911 or go whoop the guy? And uh, he turns on his lights and it was a police car. Oh. And he had been uh, kind of circling the air because he smelled a wood fire. And it was in the summer, wow. and nobody's burning a fireplace, so yeah. he knew a house was on fire somewhere. So he was looking and already prepped the fire department. And by the time he, you know, he t- when he turned on his lights and went, whoop, whoop, you know, with the siren, I walked up to the car, and he goes, "Are you okay?" And I go, "No, I can't hardly breathe." Yeah. So he called the EMT, and and then the fire trucks came, the EMTs came, and they put me on a dolly and rolled me up. There were like two trucks, a ladder truck, and all this stuff from Fairfield wow. Fire Department. And uh, they put the fire out. And um, luckily, nobody was home but me. And the dog got out. And uh, so... The house uh, was gone. The house was gone, yeah. So they take me to the emergency room, and they gave me oxygen and all that. I just inhaled smoke. And uh, this was before I smoked cigars, I think. Mm. But uh, but I did have some lung, not damage, but just some burn, I guess, in my throat. Who's the one that told your wife? I did. I had yeah. to call and tell her. Yeah, she was in Missouri. Yeah. And uh, so the next day I called and told her. And, um, of course, all of my banking records, computer, checkbook, all that stuff was in the house. Yeah. And uh, since I was the only one home, the first thing they thought was arson. Of course, you know, he did it. The husband did it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it wasn't, you know. And because uh, they brought they, the state arson investigator mm-hmm. I was there at the house the next day mm-hmm. and he had a dog there and he goes do you mind if we take the dog no I guess he took the dog through anyway sure and they went through and there was no arson they they eventually figured out it started an electrical outlet where my aquarium was plugged in yeah somebody the house was built in the 60s or 70s with aluminum wiring yeah somebody had replaced an electrical outlet and they hooked the aluminum wire to the copper connector on the outlet. Wow. The two dissimilar metals with the electrons running through it caused it to 
create corrosion in the copper, yeah. which caused the screw to start backing off. It was in that wall that was located on the steps where kids and people have been walking up and down the steps through mm-hmm. the years. And it backed that screw off and it arced, heated up the wire and made it start in the wall. Wow. And they could tell all that because on the backside of that wall was our china cabinet with lead crystal, mm-hmm. you know, Mikasa ca- uh, crystal in there. Yeah. And it all melted, not all of it, but a lot of it melted. And it runs to the hottest point of where the origin of the fire is. It's what the investigator said. Wow. So they know that's where it started. Of course, I, my aquarium, I lost my aquarium. I had saltwater aquarium and fish and lost all that. Unbelievable. But, but we lost everything else. I mean, we, we lost everything. So I had to call my wife and tell her she had to get a flight back home. And, you know, my son, we didn't tell the kids. They were at Girl Scout camp and my son was at IU. Yeah. And so when I went to IU to pick him up, on that Friday or Saturday when camp was over, went to the concert and all this kind of stuff. And um, I said, well, I got some good news and some bad news. He said, what's that? I said, well, you don't have to worry about cleaning your room. He goes, why? I go, because the bad news, the house burned down. <laughs> he goes, really? I go, yeah. Unreal. So, I mean, and that was about the way I told him. Because my kids yeah. are used to my sense of humor. But, yeah, so... Uh, hmm. We went, we lived in a, uh, like a rental, the insurance company place rented. Yeah. And it took about a year to rebuild a house. And so we built, rebuilt with a sick wife in mind, yeah. you know, being in a wheelchair. So yeah. when you walked in, the, and you've been there, when you walk in the front door, there's no threshold. Mm-hmm. It's a flat space. There's one step that I put a ramp on yeah. so I could roll her in. And it's a double door entry. And then you don't step up into the house. You just roll straight in. The hallway going to the master bedrooms wider. Yeah, it's actually an it's an external 36, 36 door going into the bedroom so I could get a wheelchair through it. It wouldn't be a, a narrow interior door. Yeah. So it was all built with that in mind. Yeah. And so we lived there and uh, had a game room and the kids and all the kids in the neighborhood came to our house and it was great. So, yeah. And then in 2001, my wife passed away. So but, yeah. you know, we kind of knew it. We prepared for it, you know, and I was raising a motherless daughter. She was. uh I mean, you say prepared for it. like As I mean, much as you can, yeah. Yeah. You know, my daughter was nine years old when she lost her mom. Yeah. So everything that a mommy does for a little preteen and teenage girl, daddy did. First bra, wow. first period, first prom dress, all of that stuff. Yeah. And it was normal to her because I had been the primary caretaker since she was two years old. Yeah. She didn't know any different. Yeah. You know, so... And my daughter and I have the best relationship now because of that. I mean, my mommy and daddy. She calls me for recipes. She calls me for how did you cook this? Yeah. And just yesterday she goes, hey, I'm buying a shirt for her husband. His his uh, grandmother passed away and he was doing one thing and she was at the store to get the shirt, a dress shirt for him. Mm-hmm. She goes, what do all these numbers mean? It's like like 17s, 32. <laughs> Doors. What, what does that mean? How do that, I just want a large or an extra large? Right. So I had to explain to her next sizes. Men's sizes. Yeah, men's sizes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, you know, she just calls daddy for whatever. Wow. So I'll tell you what. Let's uh, let's pause for a sec. Yeah. We'll take a little break because um, I know you mentioned your sense of humor, and that is definitely something <laughs> that I wanted to touch on because that's about the time that I met you. Yeah. Um, when you were doing some stand up and stuff. Did stand up so, comedy. Yeah. Um, Let's, let's pause for a second and uh, we'll be back. All right, sounds good. 
That concludes part one of my interview with John Lawson. Be sure to check out part two at psnevergiveup.com. The Pete Scalia P.S. Never Give Up podcast is a production of Felito Media, LLC. And a reminder, you make the P.S. Never Give Up podcast possible. Be sure to support what we do by visiting our online shop at psnevergiveup.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Pete Scalia. P.S. Never Give Up.